This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. The opinion headline at USA Today reads, Oral Roberts University isn't the feel-good March Madness story we need. How accurate is this opinion piece when it comes to the religious beliefs and teachings at Oral Roberts University? This comes, of course, on the heels of South Dakota Republican Governor Kristi Noem's criticism for not signing a bill that would have banned transgendered women from taking part in female sports. At the center of both of these, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Besides Oral Roberts University, there are a lot of Christian universities still alive in the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament. Is this good news for everyone? Apparently not. And one of the most interesting things about March Madness, of course, every year is the rise of the Cinderella's. I mean, and that's it's why the opening two or three days of the tournament are, are always so intensely watched by many sports fans in America. And I say that as someone whose son is a graduate of UMBC, the ultimate underdog in the history of the NCAA tournament, the only 16 seed to ever defeat a number one seed a couple of years ago. And this year, Oral Roberts is the the poster child, so to speak, for this trend. But at the same time, people, I'm old enough to remember when Gonzaga was considered a Cinderella and that people couldn't believe that Gonzaga was still alive in the tournament. And now they're a number one seed and the going-away favorite to win the tournament, and the number two-ranked team that could meet them in the finals is, of course, my own alma mater, Baylor University. And then you have, once again, the rise defeating another alma mater, the University of Illinois, not that any of this is personal. You have Loyola of Chicago with the prey gun in her wheelchair and all of that story. So the Religion is kind of soaked into the Cinderella team story that's a big part of the tournament year after year after year. Does the USA Today opinion piece, does it get ORU? Does it understand what this organization is all about? No, to say the least. Either that or you'd say the writer does understand ORU, but considers schools of this kind to be dangerous to American culture and society. And that gets us into a bigger trend, which is eventually the impact of corporations and major organizations on state governments and on these schools. The pressure doesn't have to come from a government agency for it to be important. I mean, this this article, which is an opinion piece, but it's on a website operated by USA Today, which is a website called For the Win, which produces materials that grow out of social media and things that people are talking about. So the whole idea of the website is to kind of spark 
communication and discussion in social media and in the world that surrounds it. At the same time, it's very common to see pieces from this website. It's a USA Today-related thing. Show up in the Gannett editorial page materials that frequently will run in local newspapers. And ORU is referred to in this piece multiple times as bigoted, hateful, and at one point, the key thing it says is that people should be worried about, quote, the dangers of their religious dogma and the impact of that dogma on American life and society. You've got other problems here. Over and over and over, the term fundamentalist is used. And um, I've only been to ORU once. I spoke on the campus there probably about a decade ago. And I was impressed by several things there. It is definitely an evangelical and, more importantly, a charismatic school. And because of its charismatic theology, and, of course, its founder, Oral Roberts, was a charismatic, but a lot of people don't remember that his background is not in fundamentalism. It was in Pentecostalism. And as an adult, he moved his credentials as an ordained minister to the United Methodist Church. And under anybody's list of mainline religious groups in America, the United Methodist Church would certainly have to be there in the Seven Sisters of mainline Protestantism. So Oral Roberts was definitely a conservative evangelical. But I think the more important thing here, and this really struck me during my visit to the campus, is that Oral Roberts has very strong connections to charismatic and Pentecostal believers who are African-Americans and Latinos. There's probably as much or more diversity on this campus in terms of race and culture than there are most Christian schools in America, and that's because of this Pentecostal charismatic heritage in its bloodstream. And that's what's fascinating, because the column is written by someone whose specialty is diversity writing. So part of what she's upset about, whether she knows it or not, is the social conservatism found among Pentecostal and charismatic Latinos and African Americans. The column does have something that you have many times when we've discussed higher education and religion said is missing from a lot of news coverage. It does have the honor pledge of Oral yes, or you yes. or at least a part of their pledge there. Oh, and it has a lot of fun with that. I mean, in that it it you know, it talks about banning profanity and social dancing and even some clothing issues. In other words, there probably is a dress code at Oral Roberts. I mean, and I taught at a school down in South Florida that had a dress code affecting some things that, you know, men and women frequently tended to mock it a little bit. But this is not an uncommon thing. But it gets a, it gets chuckles here. But the key thing here, once again, is that the school's doctrines concerning sex outside of traditional Christian Judeo-Christian marriage, that's the threat. So the thing that the NCAA is being asked to shut down is the presence of doctrinally defined Christian schools in a crucial part of American life and culture, 
which is college sports. And I think I have mentioned it in the past. We saw this a number of years ago when for a brief moment, the Big 12, which I don't believe has 12 members at this point, the Big 12 was considering bringing in Brigham Young as a member of the Big 12, Brigham Young University. While everybody had fun joking about that could set up some games between the Baptist and the Mormons, or now we should call them the Latter-day Saints, a lot of people laughed about that. But behind the scenes at state universities in the Big 12, this precise issue was raised that Brigham Young has a doctrinal and behavior code affecting its students and that students signed that code in order to voluntarily attend this private university. Well, that could also be, that's a, a kind of, if you slap BYU on that, you're warning Baylor as well. And the author of this, this column is, is quite well informed about what the stakes here and, and notes that this is a private school. But once again, the question is, can a Christian school that upholds its doctrines Will it continue to be allowed to take part in big-time sports in the United States? Does the author suggest that the NCAA actually not do business with Oral Roberts University? Well, it says they shouldn't be in the tournament. I mean, and that's, in other words, this is not the feel-good story. It's dangerous that these people hear the word dangerous is used. And she is saying over and over and over the NCAA is paying lip service to its own ideals. Let me just read a paragraph. The NCAA has always been more about paying lip service to ideals of equality and inclusion than action. But Oral Roberts' inclusion in the men's tournament proves how little they actually care about those words, which are emblazoned on their basketball courts. Yet Oral Roberts, with its decrees banning homosexual conduct, stating that marriage is only between a man and a woman, and specifically banning male students from wearing makeup, earned a ticket to the big dance, even though the university's foundations expressly go against the very things the NCAA say they value. The fact is, any and all anti-LGBTQ plus language in any school's policies should ban them from NCAA competition. That's a pretty strong threat. Is this why you have suggested in the past that the NCAA might be the instrument by which these things are enforced at schools that would otherwise not want to capitulate to today's wokeness? Well, it certainly puts pressure on because when you're playing in upper-level division athletics, in power conferences particular like Baylor is, Notre Dame leaps to mind, schools are at that level. We are talking about millions and millions of dollars. I saw a, um, a reference the other day that Abilene Christian University, which was one of the first round Cinderella's this year, and in the ultimate, what everyone called accurately, a David and Goliath situation, Abilene Christian defeated the University of Texas. And I saw an, an interesting comparison that the total athletic budget of Abilene Christian was like 10 million, maybe $20 million. And the total athletics budget of the University of Texas was said to be $200 million. Well, another story that came after this, 
I mean, Abilene Christian lost in the next round and didn't make it to the Sweet 16. But the publicity from this and the impact on its alumni and its ability to, to go to major donors in Texas, which is a place that does have some people with money, a few of them, this victory, this one victory at the NCAA tournament was going to be worth approximately $100 million to Abilene Christian University in terms of the ability to build new facilities, to increase their recruiting of athletes, etc. So if you had banned Abilene Christian from being in the tournament, would that have a major financial impact on that small school? The answer obviously would be yes. How much will a school the size of Loyola of Chicago reap from this tournament if once again they soar up into the Elite Eight, you know, and take a solid I just yesterday someone on talk radio here in East Tennessee on a sports channel said I think they have a better than average shot at being in the final four this year. Well, to a small Catholic school, what would that be worth? in terms of finances. And so the minute you're dependent on those checks, you are certainly in a position to be pressured by having those checks cut off. So Terry, a couple other things here. South Dakota's Republican Governor Christy Noem has been criticized, I think in particular by Tucker Carlson of Fox News, for not signing yeah. a bill that would have banned transgendered girls from female sports. She said part of the reason she did this kind of soft veto on the thing was because she did not want to anger the NCAA. And that's something we've seen in the past where I think it was in North Carolina with a bill, what's commonly referred to as a bathroom or bathroom and showers bill, where you had an attempt to say that privacy should be extended to women and not have to be in locker room and shower situations with trans women who are still in transition and are thus biologically male at the level of DNA and at times anatomy. So you had this efforts from California to cut off all travel, all government travel to the state of North Carolina. You had other efforts by major corporations and that usually means Amazon, Apple, and some of the big tech people to say they will not put headquarters there. So a Republican governor who needs the good favor of corporate interests has to worry at this point. Well, the NCAA is the point on the spear here, potentially. What would happen if the NCAA said, because of her state taking this action, the NCAA will not sanction any NCAA competition in that state, inside its borders. And you say, well, that's a real reach. That was exactly the threat that was made concerning North Carolina. At what point could corporate efforts put enough pressure on the NCAA to simply shut down NCAA athletic competitions within a given state? But once again, I think it's important here. The NCAA is not the government. Apple is not the government. Amazon is probably more powerful than many world governments, but it's not the government. All of this is at the level of corporate interests, 
and what our mutual friend Rod Dreher has referred to as soft totalitarianism, not a government action. But that doesn't mean that the actions are not real. And if the NCAA decided, let's say that the Equality Act passed, I mean, and this is a, a real mathematical equation or a political equation that listeners should consider. And this is a point I want to underline. This is an opinion column, but this is a valid news story. This is a editorial piece about a very real topic in discussion in American life and in American sports. And also, I would say that however many editors and reporters there are, such as this editor, whose degree is in diversity studies and whose specialty is diversity writing in sports, if you think there are a lot of those editors, columnists, and reporters on that beat today, what do you think there will be in five years? Well, then that backs us up back to the Equality Act. Let's just say the following takes place. And I've put this on Twitter several times, and nobody is responding whenever I do it. And look at it this way. Think of it as an equation. Let's say that the Democrats, with their narrowest of possible voting majority in the U.S. Senate, let's say that in order to do some of the economic issues that the Biden administration wants to do, let's say that they crush the filibuster and do away with that, at which point they then, unless a couple of Democratic senators stand up to them, they then pass the Equality Act. The Equality Act then demands that all Christian parachurch groups, medical groups, educational, I mean, all of that, all that whole world outside the doors of a church, that all of those groups that interact with the public are then going to be subject to the terms of the Equality Act, including the, the belief that gender is not only hard to define and that there are dozens of genders, but that gender changes in some individuals on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis, and that these institutions have to take that into account. Well, let's so then we have a crushed filibuster, and then they pass the Equality Act at which point we begin to have a, loss, a bunch of lawsuits that go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court. With its current membership, the court has, even while standing up for trans rights to a certain degree, has said, I believe it was Justice Gorsuch in his majority opinion in one of the cases, that said there are very strong interests of religious liberty here, and nothing that the court does in establishing trans rights at the level of businesses and other things should be seen as an attempt to undercut religious liberty. So let's say that the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down the Equality Act, saying that it fails to recognize the terms of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or just the First Amendment, at that point, with the filibuster gone, what potentially happens in the U.S. Senate? At that point, you have the packing of the Supreme Court in order to change the voting pattern there. So that's a four-step process, but it's directly linked to the subjects that are in this column 
and I want to stress again, it's in the editorial column, but the subjects in it are completely worthy of hard news coverage because of this equation, not just of the NCAA, but this equation of the Equality Act, which will take all of this debate up another notch altogether. Do you think the NCAA would be willing to back these doctrinally defined Christian schools in a clash with the U.S. government under the terms of the Equality Act? I think the odds there would be slim and none. So you have mentioned several times here that this is an opinion piece in USA Today, and yet you also mentioned at the outset that the the author kind of got it wrong when it comes to calling ORU a fundamentalist institution. What Mm -hmm. kind of journalistic standards of fact apply when you're writing an opinion piece as opposed to if this had been a hard news piece? Well, she certainly is free to use the language that she does calling ORU bigoted, hateful, transphobic, dangerous, you know, and that sort of terms, that's strong language in an opinion piece. But her facts in this piece, other than that she wants to use the uh, all-too-common F-word fundamentalist, and she uses that inaccurate, but she's certainly not that worried about church history, right, in a piece like this, in terms of getting those terms accurate. But everything else in the piece, the facts are there. And if you take her interpretation, her conclusions will be seen as valid by many, many people on the political, cultural, and religious left. Which is why I keep saying this is a subject worthy of serious coverage. And if you did serious coverage, I would sure hope that they quote liberals and conservatives who want to defend religious liberty under these kinds of circumstances. But to make your point again, religious liberty does not protect you from Amazon. Religious liberty does not protect you from the NCAA. Religious liberty does not protect you from USA Today. It certainly doesn't protect you from ESPN. Those are all not public institutions. Those are private institutions, and they're free to do whatever they want to do, under the First Amendment, I would add. I think we ought to be quick to add, and so are private universities. Yes. And she's not saying that ORU should be closed. In fact, she specifically says this is a private institution, and they are free to, you know, enforce their bigoted, hateful, dangerous doctrines on their own students. But she's saying the NCAA doesn't have to go along with that. And she's right. If you decide that it's time to start punishing religious institutions for their doctrines. With that said, why have you so often bemoaned the fact that there is a blurring of the line between news and opinion? Well, I mean, I heard from people who thought this was a news piece. And once you get into the Internet and URLs and columns start flying around, I think way too many Americans no longer see a line between editorial and news. They don't believe journalists enforce that line, and they certainly, once it gets into Facebook, if you post this URL on Facebook, and people start reading this piece, 
not many of them are going to notice the word opinion in the headline. They're going to see USA Today, and they're going to they're going to say, "Wait, my local newspaper is owned by the company that publishes USA Today," and they're going to be very upset about this piece, even though it is a work of opinion journalism. In America, the bright red line between opinion journalism and factual, hopefully accurate, fair-minded, balanced journalism, that line is all but gone in an age when half the nation is watching Fox News evening shows on a drip tube straight into their veins, and the other half of the nation is doing the exact same thing with MSNBC and CNN. Finally, with the minute here, what we're, we're talking ultimately about advocacy journalism, which other countries have. Yeah. What do we lose if we shift from what we would call journalistic standards of traditional American press to advocacy journalism? We're losing the sense that there exists a world of factual material that can be reported and then debated with people on both sides of the debate being shown respect by our journalistic institutions. Ultimately, this is whether it's a question of whether religious believers who clash with the sexual revolution deserve tolerance, respect, the ability to participate in important parts of American life, such as the NCAA, and then potentially, as I said with that four-part equation, we're not that far away now from this ending up at a loaded, packed, divided U.S. Supreme Court, at which point all of this turns into government and legal questions. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.